This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. I think people do feel as though they've lost a mate. It's been fascinating to watch in a completely impartial sense how extraordinarily loved he was across the world. My father was supposed to be in Sydney that night. He cancelled the trip. He came home and he said to my mother, I think I might go and see a doctor tomorrow, not telling her that he'd been told by the doctor, go and get your heart checked now. And three hours later, he was dead. So the warning there is, (laughs) if you have anything related to heart or back or left or right arm, for goodness sake, go and do something about it. Our democracy is precious. Any alternative to democracy is literally unthinkable. We have to get in and do everything we can to save it. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, you've just taken away your last excuse. Put your hand up, girl. It's time for you to put your money where your mouth is. Without doubt, I read this in January, Carol. This is in my top three for the year. If not possibly, will it be my best book of We're only just into March. I know. I've made the call. I made the call. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. It is episode 208, and we are recording this on International Women's Day. So happy International Women's Day to all of our gang. It is a rather sombre time here in the world, particularly here in Australia, Members of our community are suffering in New South Wales and Queensland because of these terrible floods. And of course, the Russians, the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues and the death of two great cricketing stars over the weekend. But we are going to attempt the light relief, Caro Wilson, aren't we? Hi, Caro. We are, Corrie. It is, it is difficult. I think I'll always remember, like you always remember certain pieces of news, you know, and um, I can't remember... John F. Kennedy being shot, but anyone slightly older than me can. Um, I remember when I was told that when I heard on the news that Princess Diana had actually died and wasn't just slightly injured as we were hearing all that dreadful morning on August 31, back all those years ago. But when Brendan told me in the early hours of Saturday that Shane Warne was dead, I, I, I still, you know, days later, I'm, I still can't quite believe it. He... We, I didn't claim to know him well. I met him a few times, always got on reasonably well with him. We all felt we knew him. He was a part of our lives. And as you say, one of the greatest cricketers of all time, top five of the 20th century, in fact, but um, so much more than that, wasn't he? So many, so many memories of Shane Warne. And, and look, Caro, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm not a, you know, a cricket fanatic. There are others who who have talked about his his great innings, his great scores, his great bowling and averages. But for me as a bookseller, I think the highlight for me was selling his incredibly, I would say authentic actually, autobiography, No Spin, a couple of years ago. It walked out the door as a hardcover and then a few months later it came out as a paperback and it was written with Mark Nicholas, who of course is the champion um, English player and now commentator. And Shane Warne was very open and reflective. And it reminded me, Caro, of what a great, um, how insightful he is, to, he was to the game and his perception about the game. And had he not chosen the career of the sort of the celebrity and gone down the path of coaching 
and actually working full-time with perhaps Cricket Australia or other cricketing organisations, what a profound impact he would have had. I often think the same way with Dermot Brereton, what a great coach Dermot Brereton would have been. And, you know, as a player, they're often larger than life. They're charismatic. They get into a bit of trouble. Things happen all around them. But when we take them into a studio or a microphone or have a reflective moment and they start talking about the games they love, their insight comes to the fore. And particularly that interview that Shane Warne did with Lee Sales a couple of years ago, which was replayed on the ABC on Monday night, I suggest everybody has a look at it because we see the real Shane Warne. You write in the book um, about going to see a psychologist um, to try to help you become a better person. And one of the things he made you do was to imagine your own obituary. Mm. If you're really lucky, you know, you're one of the lucky people in life, you might have another 30 years of life left. What do you want to do with that time? Yeah, uh, you know, I encourage anyone, if they've got any issues whatsoever, to please go and see someone because it's important to go and talk to someone. I was a bit like, ah, don't need that, don't need that. And then when I started dating Elizabeth and... I wanted to become a better person, not just because of her, but because of the kids. And I just said, you know what, I'm sick of the rubbish. I want to be better and I wanted to understand why things happened. And I got Jeremy Snape, who's become a great friend. And, you know, one of the first things we did, we had a week in the hotel room, basically. He said, it's going to be brutal. I said, bring it. Let's go. I want to understand this. Um, And the first question he he said, you've got to write this. He said, you know, write your own obituary. I went, "Uh, right. And I, I had a few goes at it. Um, and I didn't like, at that stage, I wasn't happy with who I am. And I felt I needed to change. I needed to do a few things and be better. And I've tried, you know, and I've tried. And I think I'm doing a pretty good job. That was, well, I think it was eight years ago now, seven or eight years ago. Um, as you say, maybe I'm getting a little bit wiser. Maybe I'm um, maturing. But I, I, I know I'm happy with who I am and I understand myself. So that's half the battle. Yeah, it was a great interview. And Adam Gilchrist said, I think, to Lee Sales on the 7.30 report on Monday night, he was happy to talk to her about him again, even though it's been an exhausting few days, um, because he knew how much, how nervous Shane had been before that interview and how happy he was afterwards that someone had finally got him. And because of the international celebrity he'd become, Lee's view was that he'd never, very, very rarely anyway, done a serious sit-down interview, except for the one with Michael Parkinson, I think, um, around the time of his retirement. Look, I, I think people do feel as though they've lost a mate. The um, remarkable and, you know, if it wasn't so sad, quite funny sort of tributes left to him by the statue at the MCG, which I've got to say isn't the best statue. The likeness of Warnie is not quite there, but there you go. Um, you know, the baked beans, the, the cans of beer, all all the different sort of tributes left to him. Look, it's um, it's it's just been a it's been fascinating to watch, in a in a completely impartial sense, how extraordinarily loved he was across the world. It, reading the messages from his children overnight, just so so sad. You know, particularly the for me the comment from Brooke, his eldest child, um, little Summer, the youngest, saying, you know, if I'd known it was the last time, I would have hugged you harder. I mean, it is quite. You know, the the death of any family member at an early age is tragic. The death of a family member overseas when it comes suddenly, even more sad, you know, and and, and all the complicated additions that come to that death. Um, There was the the state of Victoria left no debate. There are some people who wonder about renaming the Southern Stand, the SK Warren Stand. I like the 
immediate announcement from Daniel Andrews. I think it made absolutely no difference what happened in the days that followed his death. I think it is appropriate. I don't think we'll ever get a greater cricketer from Victoria, and if we do, not a greater sort of figure across the board. Um, as there, were, a, there were some who felt that it was it was hasty, given that the exact circumstances of his death were still unknown. That that don't think it mattered though. Well, don't, I don't. I don't um, yeah, I don't think it mattered either. It, but it, it is it is interesting that there were some in I some quarters, senior quarters. There was concern that this. Well, we've gone out too hard on this decision. I think there's more review that um, do you want to name a stand after anyone? But there was a great tradition of that happening. I'm I'm completely comfortable with it. I'm really going to miss his commentary because he was getting better and better at it. I think he captured cricket for me in a way that he continued to develop with the game and even more so than, than Dermot, I reckon. But, you know, the other thing is um, what you say when somebody has died in a way that maybe and, – and Ian Healy was quite blunt when he said, I'm not surprised he died early. He didn't look after himself um, as he should have. I thought it would be skin cancer that got him because he never well, – he didn't wear sunscreen enough. Um, I didn't, with the heart, you know, his weight fluctuated so much. He went on all these ridiculous diets. And when I read those comments by his, one of his former wicket keepers, Ian Healy, I was like, oh, gee, that's a bit harsh. But maybe it will serve as a warning. And, and you, know, you lost your father to a massive heart attack without any mourning, really. Although, like Shane Warne, I think your dad had been warned. And your dad was significantly younger than even Shane, who was yeah, 52. <clears throat> he was under a lot of pressure as editor of The Age at the time, and he was smoking 80 camel cigarettes a day, But um, and that, and he was a little bit overweight. But So if someone but, had made that comment about your dad, would you have been a bit offended? Um, no, because they actually have. Interestingly, you know, when dad died, he'd had, a, he'd had heart chest pain for about a year leading up to it. And in those days, which we're talking the mid-70s, there were just not the tests that there are now and nobody picked up anything and they just said, look, we think it's stress, we think it's muscle spasms, it all seems to be fine. Um, little, And then he, he died on the bed one night and he was dead within 10 minutes of saying to my mother, call the doctor. But uh, what was interesting was when Ben Hills's biography of my dad came out um, about 10 years ago now, Ben... Uh, Ben had researched, um, had spoken to the doctor at the age, Ted Knight, who used to have, they used to, those were the days, Cara, they used to actually have a medical uh, surgery inside the age building. That's how well um, employees then were looked after. And my dad had spoken to Ted and Ted said, I want you to go and see a heart specialist tomorrow. We didn't know this. This came out in the biography. We, We want you to go and see a heart specialist tomorrow. And my father was supposed to be in Sydney that night. He cancelled the trip. He came home and he said to my mother, I think I might go and see a doctor tomorrow, not telling her that he'd been told by the doctor, go and get your heart checked now. And three hours later, he was dead. So the warning there is, (laughs) it is, if you have anything related to heart or back or left or right arm, anything that you think, oh, this is, maybe it's indigestion, for goodness sake, go and do something about it. Somebody very close to you and I, Caro, has been through an experience like this over summer. For God's sake, go and do something about it. Get it checked out. What's the worst that can happen? What's the worst that can happen? The hospital says, oh, there's nothing here. Go home. What, embarrassment? Who cares? Please, everybody, take this as a warning. Yeah, look, it's um, I, I absolutely take that on board. And, and I think probably with your father, who I never met, but also with Shane Warne, 
these people just seem so invincible and so larger than life in the life that they lead that you just can't believe that something, well, it's not insignificant, a heart attack, but this, this thing will claim them without, without. Oh, Caro. And, and you know, my, as soon as this happened and all weekend, my thoughts have been with the children because I know how they feel. And I think what they have to prepare themselves for, which um, nobody had said we had to prepare ourselves for is the outpouring of love and emotion. And so arriving at my dad's funeral, which was at Scott's church in Melbourne, the entire intersection of Russell Street and Collins Street was blocked. We couldn't get our, our car through. And we got out of the car and there were hundreds of people, not only in the church, but outside. And there were people like Bob Hawke sobbing, Graham Kennedy sobbing. It was so overwhelming. And nobody had said to us, this is going to be a big deal. So when somebody in the public eye... Uh, you know, we have to remember the children and the family because they're at the heart of this. And I just, my my thoughts are with them. And also, you mentioned lovely comments. Liz Hurley, to whom Shane Warne was engaged, her son made some lovely comments on social media as well. I just think he he obviously, with his friends and family, was so loved. So that's um yeah. So so that's that that nature of having to share a universal or a nationwide grief when you've got your own private grief. And that's obviously, which is why I think they're having a very small private funeral before the state funeral, which will happen in a few weeks at the MCG, which will just be a massive event. And um, watching, you know, Australian captains, you know, break down in tears on the TV, talking about their love for him and what he meant to him. I mean, there was so many different things about Shane Warne that, you know, he clearly he was flawed and he talked about his flaws in that Lee Sales interview and he talked about, as you say in the book, I don't know why sporting champions write autobiographies or take part in biographies and then don't tell the whole truth because it's just to me, there's, there's been so many, I could, a litany of really very boring and untrue books that haven't gone straight to the heart of it. My own personal experience, I only met him a few times to actually talk to, but I remember seeing him at the Emerald Hotel back in the 90s after Trevor Barker died and there was an impromptu wake for Trevor Barker. Um, our friend Billy Cannon was there, a lot of other, you know, a lot of other St Kilda sort of people, all sorts of people, and Shane Warne standing at the bar with um, what I thought were tears streaming down his face because, of course, he just adored Trevor Barker, another another sportsman who could have changed the shape of that football club but but died too early to become its coach. And then he he did Anna from the op shop says that twice a year he would ring her boss and just say, come down, take what you want, sporting memorabilia. He gave away so much stuff. He was so generous. And um I was honoured enough to share a stage with him, not with him, but before him or after him. I can't remember when there was a fundraiser for Stephen Phillips, the sporting journalist and commentator, when he was suffering from cancer to raise some money for his family. And I commented to Shane that our daughters had got together the previous weekend because Clem and Brooke know each other. And I remember he just shook his head and said, recipe for disaster. (laughs) And we had a bit of a laugh. I mean, he, he, he was exactly like, he always was. And everyone says he was the same as a kid. He was the same as a teenager. He never changed. Carol, it's a measure of the person when they die and you see uh, famous people, people like Sam Newman on television the other night, people who can't speak because they are, people who are used to speaking in public who cannot speak 
because they are so distraught. Ricky Ponting, uh, crying, uh, he could hardly get a word out. Uh, it says a lot about the person and and their impact on others. Um, when you see, when you see, we actually see that for yourself. One of his great regrets, of course, was that he never got to Captain Australia, and he he was upset about that. He resented that at times, and it was funny seeing him in that sort of twilight of his career, captaining the Rajasthan Royals, and they they were, as Gideon Haig said, a bit of a ragtag bunch of cricketers, but he led them to some great victories. He by then he was past his best. But the, the other point about him was his endurance. I mean, he wasn't as fit as he should have been. We know what a brilliant spin bowler he was, the best ever. He reinvented the art. But um, he, he could bowl for hours. And cricketers just can't do that anymore. There was something, he might his heart might have failed him at the end, but, gee, it carried Australia for more than a decade, well over a decade. Anyway, um, Vale, Shane Warne. Caro, we are recording this on International Women's Day and I couldn't think of a better Australian guest, a wonderful uh, presence in our lives on our television screens. She writes columns for newspapers. She is here, there and everywhere and she is about to throw her hat in the ring for a Senate seat in New South Wales and she has a new wonderful murder mystery, Jane Caro. Jane, it's great to have you back we congratulate you on uh, a new book. Alan and Unwin has brought this out. Uh, it arrived in on bookshelves last week, and we are very excited. And Caro, who particularly loves murder mysteries, devoured it on a recent holiday, didn't you, Kaz? I did. I mean, I think mysteries probably. I don't think there's any mystery about who. Um, no, there isn't. Commits this murder, but um, I completed it, Jane, on a rainy day in Yamba last week, and um, <laughs> a, a great achievement. I mean. I couldn't put it down. It is a complete page turner. Women and men will relate to this story and it's a story of a, of a really disturbing, controlling marriage and what the mother in the in this particular story does to put an end to something that she basically cannot see for a long, long time. Jane, I'm, I'm fascinated as to why uh, clearly this hasn't happened in your life. It's a it's a brutal, right. devastating story, and I gather you were prompted to literally put pen to paper after a couple of other stories you read about, which really upset you. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they upset everyone. Uh, yep. We get far too many of these awful, you know, murder suicide events uh, where a man, often previously uh, well regarded, seemingly ordinary man kills his wife and often his children and these are too routine in our headlines and yes there were a couple that particularly got to me and I saw a photograph of um, a woman and her children who'd been involved in one of these and who were now dead and they were pictured with an older woman probably about my age I think it was her grandmother rather than her mother but anyway and um her face was pixelated and stopped me. I mean, I've got daughters and grandchildren. And I just looked at this woman and I thought, gosh, what if it's, how must she feel? How would I feel if it was my daughter and my grandchildren? And what would I do? And then I thought, well, I know what I'd want to do. And then I had the idea. And as I so often find when I write fiction, when you get the idea, it just insists that you write it. It won't let you go. And that's how this was. So the last time we spoke, um, you just released Accidental Feminist, which was a great story, not a novel, about women who suddenly find themselves on the poverty line because they've never, among other things, 
developed a proper superannuation plan and a lot of other issues besides. What made you decide to write this in a, in a fictional sense? And, and Miriam Duffy is a great, well, she's not an anti-hero. She's a hero, really, to me. Um, mm. And um, <laughs> I just wonder what made you decide to write it like that and not in, a, in your normal way like, like the other. Uh, Once We Were Sisters, which I, was a great book, I thought. Anyway, yeah. go on. Yeah, well, um, it came to me as a, a an imaginative, like as a fiction idea. Yep. So it came to me um, that way. But also when I thought about it, and at first I was hesitant. I thought, is that an appropriate thing to write a novel about? Particularly as it's not my lived experience. Um, and so I went and talked to some people in the sector, particularly Annabelle Daniel, and they said it's a great idea because you'll get a new audience. You'll get an audience of people who might never read a non-fiction book about this kind of stuff but who love thrillers and therefore will read a thriller. And so that sort of encouraged me. And I also thought the thing about fiction, which I really like, and I have written fiction before but young adult, is that it takes you out of your head and out of judgment because nonfiction is really um, working with your intellect. It's it's persuasive. It's putting the facts and the figures and you know all that kind of stuff in front of you and making its arguments to convince of its point of view. But fiction doesn't do that. Fiction takes you out of your head and into your heart and your gut, and it makes you take the ride that your characters are on. If it's successful, you enjoy a book when you are actually absorbed in the lives of the people you're reading about and you're actually going through what they're going through vicariously so you're feeling their fears um you know experiencing their bewilderment struggling with the same dilemmas you know and you get really caught up in it and I think when we get out of our heads out of our intellects and we get into our heart and our guts we go from judgment into compassion and as soon as we get to compassion we're actually a lot closer to understanding what the real problem is why women get caught up in this stuff why it's so hard to see and why it's so complicated to do something about and that's really what I wanted to wake people up to um, the real complexities of this issue and it's not as easy as just saying well why didn't she leave him or I would never have been attracted to a man who'd behave like that or even worse, I've heard people say things like, well, you know, she shouldn't have kept her children away from him. Um, I wanted to bust those myths right wide open because that's all they are, myths. Well, Corrie asked me what I thought of the book and I I said, look, it is quite, even though it, in in one sense it's a very readable, simple tale, it's also very nuanced and multi-layered and and like the maid which we both really enjoyed on Netflix the the violence in the marriage is not actually there's not a lot of violence you actually read about or hear about no. there's there's a lot of threats and there's a lot of implied control and um I, I guess that's why um it took so long for Miriam the mother who was an intelligent successful woman to see what was clearly unraveling right in front of her and mm. I like the fact, Corrie, that there wasn't, it wasn't just a brutal tale of a woman who was being beaten up, which clearly does happen, but this was another sort of violence. It was more subversive. Jane, at the same time as I was reading The Mother, your novel, I was reading or rereading Jess Hill's 2020 book, See What You Made Me Do, and she won the Stellar Prize for that. And and for for potties who don't know it, it's a non fiction book by an investigative journalist looking at um, um, violence against women and and, and violence and uh, abuse in all its forms. And um, there, there's a lot of practical information there, and there's a there there's a lot of opinion. And but the, the 
the stories or where you really glue on to, to the issue is through the stories, through the narratives of the women yeah. who Jess talks to. And so many of them, Jane, they start off as the normal, I don't even know what normal is, but normal families, normal normal relationships that suddenly this control freak husband emerges or partner emerges from no, seemingly nowhere. Or maybe it was there mm. all along and the, the woman and her family, friends, everybody ignored it. And those were the compelling stories. And you're absolutely right. A, a story brings everything to life, doesn't it? It makes us really yep. think more about the issue because we can relate to those characters. We're hardwired to pay attention to story. And so um, I thought it was important to tell a story um, and it is a work of imagination. So it is not based on any particular... You have very nice son-in-laws, don't you? (laughs) I do. I did have to apologise to my son-in-laws, but actually the people I feel guiltiest about and have to make the biggest apology to are the Dungog Veterinary Service. Um, Yes. uh, I I apologise to them on a regular basis. Because because the male protagonist in this story is a a vet. And immediately you think of... I mean... We, who thinks a vet would be a uh, – anyway, that's that's another story. But it, one more on this. Um, the mother clearly in the story, Miriam, starts to question her own job as a mother. You know, she's always been a professional yeah. woman. She comes from the wrong side of the tracks. Um, did she do enough for her daughters? The daughter in question had had a series of bad relationships, I gather, before she, you know, moved into this relationship. Mm. Um, it, it's just it, – it tears a family apart, really doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I think it is the nature of mothering and I hope parenting, but I only really know about mothering, to feel guilty, to feel responsible. In a way, the child is your responsibility when you first conceive it until, well, Miriam hopes when (coughs) she gets married, but ah, doesn't turn out that way. Um, And she, you know, I think we do question ourselves all the time and when things go wrong for our kids, we wonder, you know, did we do something, forget something, miss something out, not give the right message? I think there's something very noble about that, but I also think it's a bit useless. You know, you've done your job. You did the best you could. None of us are perfect. Can you imagine having a perfect mother? I think that would screw you up worse than anything else. So we almost have to um, acknowledge that, of course, we got things wrong, but as long as we keep loving our kids and what I admire about Miriam and that sounds weird about your own character but still is that she doesn't let go even though she's pushed away and pushed away and pushed away and pushed away and she's very hurt by that she doesn't let go and I think that that is the essence of good parenting loving parenting that no matter what happens to your kids no matter what they do you don't let go in a weird way Nick's mother is like that too I have a lot of sympathy for Sally Um, and I hope that that comes across to the reader when they're reading the book. I don't want to demonise anyone. I'm pretty hard on Nick, though, and I reckon he deserves it. Deserves everything he gets. He does, and and (laughs) Sally is an incredibly um, sympathetic figure. Now, um, I read the sort of, I think, implication, or not really implication, but you were certainly asked the question in an interview recently in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age about whether, is it mere coincidence that you've decided to finally throw your hat into the political ring at a time you're trying to sell a potentially best-selling novel. Is there a connection, Jane, or the incidents unrelated? If I was that 
clever and Machiavellian. <laughs> I would rule the world. Um, I, honestly, it's a complete coincidence. Uh, when I started writing this book and then pitched it to publishers, we were expecting um, an election in November last year. Um, and, you know, it just went as it went. You know what it's like. You don't know if you're going to get a publisher and how long it takes to, you know, get one to sign on the dotted line. And then, you, you know, you're given a schedule and so on and so forth. So it is a complete coincidence. It's both good in that uh, it's giving me a lot of um, access to the public and to publicity that my little team that are running very, very fast to help me get in the Senate on the smell of an oily rag don't have to organise or pay for, so that's excellent. But let me tell you, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I am running so fast in a million different directions. I bet your head, I bet your head is spinning. What was So what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you to decide to enter the fray? It has been, just if we look at the what's been happening for women in Australia, just that single topic. And I know the environment is very, very close to your heart and climate change. But it has been an extraordinary year for Australian women and you have popped up. Your Twitter feed is is compulsory reading on my part every day. Um, you really have been in this space for a long time. But I just wonder what was the moment where you thought, screw this, I've got to get engaged and involved in a bigger way? I thought about it for a while, but I wasn't quite sure how to get going. And then the Reason Party picked up the phone and asked me. And that made me have to think about it in a more, you know, realistic, concrete kind of a way. And so that was the catalyst for really investigating it. But in terms of my, uh, what motivates me um, to want to get into the Senate, to want to stop sniping from the sidelines and actually, you know, get right in there and see what I can actually do, if anything, is looking at all those things you mentioned, what's happening with women, basically nothing, a whole lot of lip service. Um, climate change, what's happening with that, basically nothing, a whole lot of lip service and look at what's going on as a result. But also I'm terribly concerned about the state of our democracy. I feel like it's being corroded by the very people who are meant to be the guardians of it, our leaders, who are um, undermining the trust that Australians have in our democratic institutions. And democracy has, we have to trust that it, democracy is um, as fair as it can be, that our leaders are at least working with our interests in, at heart, even if we don't agree with the solutions they come up with. We have a sense that they actually care about our fate. And it's become harder and harder and harder to believe that about the people who lead us and the lack of a federal ICAC, uh, the lack of evidence-based policymaking, the feeling that there are agendas that have nothing to do with why people might have voted uh, for our representatives that are actually ruling what decisions are being taken and how often it seems the exact wrong decision is taken in terms of what it will do for are the really wicked problems we're facing. So there's a lot of that in it too, a, a feeling of all it, our democracy is precious. Any alternative to democracy is literally unthinkable and it's weakening all over the Western world. I mean, that's why Putin's done what he's done. He's testing to see, you know, how strong democracy is. And what we have to do is save it. And therefore, it's our form of government. It's about us not about our leaders. We have to get in and do everything we can to save it. And when I thought about that, I thought, well, you've just taken away your last excuse. Put your hand up, girl. It's time for you 
to put your money where your mouth is. So it's it's a doing. it's a big move for. I, I mean, I say journalist. I think of you as a journalist now and a commentator, even though your background has been in advertising um, over the years. But um, it's an interesting move for a journalist to suddenly become involved in the story, because many journalists yes. would argue the power comes from being outside the story. And there is a lot of power in that. But I think um, I, I, I look to Zoe Daniel, who's also entered the fray um, as an independent in Goldstone, and um, she's a much more accomplished. I don't think of myself as a journalist because I've never trained as a journalist. I'm a commentator, I think, and a writer primarily. Um, I'm always deeply flattered when anyone thinks of me as a journalist, so thank you for that. <laughs> but um, I think of myself as uh, an engaged and interested citizen, and I do the things that I'm, I'm interested in and good at, um, and I'm, I'm hopeful that I, I'm certainly interested in politics and always have been, and I'm hopeful that I would have something to contribute, certainly by standing for a party like Reason, which is all about evidence, all about scientific fact, all about reason, for goodness sake, which we seem to have lost a fair bit of recently, um, I'm, that I will uh, be able to be myself in the parliament, not have to, because you see a lot of people who go into politics and they were really terrific outside of it. You know, Peter Garrett springs to mind, Jenny George, a number of others. And then they sort of disappear, you know, and they swallowed up by the party system. What I like about standing for a, a, a micro party is I don't think that's a risk. And that's what I like about seeing the other independents too. This idea that we need and I'm using the word disinterested, which doesn't mean not interested. It means without a special interest, a particular vested interest, actually getting into parliament and making the kinds of decisions that most Australians, if they were given the evidence, would go, well, that's a no-brainer. Why aren't we doing that? The we know the solutions to most of the problems that face us. We just lack the political will to put them into practice. I don't know why. I can guess some things but I don't know why. And so I think it is time to be part of the story. I think the political system is um, a very good reason, Jane. I mean, when the biggest announcement yesterday was um, potentially removing um, the excise tax on beer as one of the big um, policies of the government going into the next election. I'm not saying, you know, it's the only thing, and I know a lot of people would like cheaper beer, but... In, in, on this particular day. Just to ask you a personal one, you said you'd run out of excuses. Mm. Why didn't you stand for Warringal? Because I, I remember that was on the cards before mm. Zali Stegall stood up and won, won that seat. Well, a couple of reasons. Um, the first was um, I actually thought that, I mean, I live on the lower north shore of Sydney and I grew up in Warringah. I live just on the border. So I didn't actually live in the seat. But also when I looked at those seats, I think that they have that I would have a lot of trouble getting elected in those seats. I'm a bit too radical for them. Um, you know my most radical position for the London Shore? Um, my support for public education. That's the, practically the most <laughs> radical position you can hold in Australia today. And when you think about how bedrock important a strong, excellent, well-funded public education system is to a functioning democracy, if we're going to have power in the hands of citizens. We have to have educated citizens. Um, the two are absolutely connected. Uh, so mutually, uh, me and the people who were uh, running the uh, bid for getting rid of Tony Abbott and Maureen decided I wasn't the right candidate. And I'm glad we did. I think we made the right decision because Zali Stickle has been outstanding. And of course, she did get him out 
which was marvellous. So um, I, I'm, I'm pleased I made that decision. And the reason I was more attracted to the Senate is I felt that uh, a whole, uh, my, my appeal is not geographical. It's not by, about being in a local area. Yep. If I have um, people who would like to see me in the Senate, I think they're scattered all over New South Wales. As you're saying that, I'm thinking of Jackie Lambie, who I would, yes. when she first came to the Senate, I, I thought, well, she and she is a terrific represent represent representer of her state, Tasmania. But so often I find myself agreeing with her on bigger picture issues. And that's what I love about I, why I the Senate same. works. Yeah. And she's herself. And she's she doesn't herself. play the party game. That's what I want to be myself. It's all I've ever tried to be. I intend to continue to do that, whatever happens. Well, we hope that you're there uh, on on election night. I hope we see you. What, who's your boyfriend on the ABC, Carol? Anthony Green. I, <laughs> they go, they go back away. Um, but we, I hope we see. I hope we seeing see Jane Carrow up there. Uh, it would be great to have your voice in Parliament. Can Jane, I? Can I end the? Can I just end this discussion to ask you what International Women's Day means to you? Because we are talking on that particular day. I mean, there, there's a view that it's almost a sexist in itself to have an International Women's Day. I mean, I. I I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, except that a lot of women get to stand up and there's nothing actually wrong with that. Do you have a view about it? Is it outdated? Oh, I think it's I think it's great. I'm glad we have it. There is an International Men's Day. If any man would like to organise some celebrations on that day, they're more than welcome. What I love is they always whinge to us and I my answer to them is, no, there is one. Go and look it up on Google. You'll find it. And if you'd like to organise some stuff, go right ahead. But if you're expecting women to organise the celebrations yes. for International Men Day, Men's Day, you've got another thing coming. Exactly. Men, like we men, organise them for Women's men Day. Bring you a, do it for men, the men. Yeah, men bring a plate, isn't it? Men bring your own men plate. Men bring a plate. <laughs> exactly. And organise the whole thing and clean up afterwards. Um, fine. I think International Women's Day is great. It is an opportunity for women to get together to uh, talk about how far we've come and to talk about what we've still got to do and to give one another, to, to, to do the thing I love most of all, the literal meaning of encourage, to pass on courage to one another because the fight is hard, the fight is exhausting and the fight is relentless. The minute we relax, all the things push back again a little bit. Um, we never lose everything but we often lose a lot of what we thought we had. Just look at what's happening in America with the possible loss of Roe v. Wade. Um, that is shocking. So, you know, we can never take it for granted. That's absolutely exhausting on top of everything else we seem to have to do in this society. So it's a really good day for us to recharge our batteries and to literally support one another to keep on going. Um, love it. Yes, and also and, and redressing two thousand years of imbalance. Jane, we uh, we love chatting to you. I, I, look, I'm sure that um, Melbourne is not in your patch when you're campaigning when the federal election is finally called. But um, next time you're in Melbourne, we would love to see you as always to have a chat about things. Uh, your first adult novel, as you pointed out, I, I mistakenly said your first novel because you have written novels for um, young adults. But your first adult novel, The Mother was published last week by Alan and Unwin, $32.99. Everyone, go get a copy. Carol and I have loved it. And we've loved having a chat with you, Jane, and all the best for this year. Thank you so much. Um, it's always lovely to talk to you guys. I'll come back anytime. Jane, all the best. We mean that most sincerely. You go, girl. I just think more women in the Thank Senate, you. the better the world will be.
Caro, it's that time of the week and Miss Jane has brought out her angel wings and her harp and it's Dear Caro and Corrie. Modern Dilemma. What's our Modern Dilemma this week, Caro? Corrie, this isn't, look, they're all fabulous and we should say that from next week, from episode 209, we're going to do a breakout, Dear Caro and Corrie. Oh, because we have so many letters. Well, we have so many dilemmas. (laughs) I can think of a few this morning. Yes, so everybody, if you want us to discuss an issue that you have and we can keep it as anonymous as you like, please send us an email to feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. From the serious to the ridiculous, we are here to help. From Kylie this week. Is it okay to reach out to friends of your mum to see if they have noticed her fading? from a memory perspective. She's not very old. This is Kylie's mum, 70 this year. Oh, gee, that's a bit of a concern. I'm, I'm not laughing, Kylie, at your mum. Sorry. Oh, no, we're laughing at our age. What but did li- you say? What's your name again? Living alone for two years of COVID seems to have dulled her disproportionately, if that makes sense. Thanks, lady. Happy for you to run this one past Julia too, for her opinion. I love Julia. That's my mum, Julia. Oh, that's who happily, lovely, Kylie. happily doesn't seem to... At this stage, certainly, Mum's memory is um, extraordinary, extraordinary. Sharper than yours and mine put together, which is probably not saying a lot. But what an interesting dilemma this is, Caro. Well, it's interesting because sometimes we all have friends and friends of our parents who might come to us and comment on something about your parent that they've noticed or they're concerned about. And it can be a little bit irritating. You know, I'm not just I'm not just speaking for myself. I'm speaking for other friends who've told me this. You know how dare they dare they stick their bib stick their bib in? You know, people get quite upset about people telling you something that you maybe don't want to know, already know, or don't believe. And you can widen that to you know what do you do if you know you think someone's husband is playing up? No one ever thanks you for maybe passing on that piece of information, but um. I think it is all right, Corrie. I do too, because what Kylie is saying is that she is it okay to ask friends of her mother? And I think that's what love and friendship and girlfriendship should be all about. Well, boyfriendship too. I mean, why be gender specific here? But we should be able to have those conversations with friends of our mothers, mother, and say, "Have you noticed anything?" Because it's in the it's it's in the best interests of the person. Carol, I remember when my grandfather was about, um, I don't know, early 80s and he was still driving his VW around the streets of Melbourne and there was uh, a friend of his in the old people's home who pulled me aside one day and said, we don't think your grandfather should be driving. Um, he's too old. And I looked at this um, chap and he was, I think, about 92, which I thought was kind of interesting. You know, he's too old. Um, but it was, it was, my response was when you said that, that brought me back straight back to that moment because I thought, oh, you interfering old sod. You know, this yep. is my grandfather. He's sensible. He can make the call. But actually grandpa could not make the call because to take somebody's car away is a difficult decision. But people resist it because it's their, almost their last uh, connection with um with with independence and getting around. And so it was very difficult. I remember that whole scenario that we had to then face. But my first instinct was butt out. Yes. Well, I mean, and I think in the case of Kylie, I think the point you mentioned about COVID is interesting because it COVID for a lot of people did change their behaviours. 
change their psyche, maybe set them back in certain ways, maybe spark them up in certain ways, maybe gave them a new lease of life for whatever reason, um, for the way they changed their lifestyle. But I think, I think it is a bit of a watch and wait perhaps in the early days, Kylie. I, I think that you, has your, if your mum has been alone a lot and living alone over two years, maybe it has been a bit of a shock to the system. Oh, I found it hard to talk. I know that's difficult for anybody who knows me to believe, but I found socialising after lockdown quite difficult because you're so alone with your thoughts or if you have one person you live with, you don't spend an awful lot of time thinking about the art of conversation. It's interesting. Yeah, well, I must say I not so much conversation for me, but being at big events, big parties, small talk, dinner parties, sitting to some, you suddenly sit down at a dinner and you think, oh, Lord, I've got, you know. <laughs> Small talk. I'm only at the entree, you know. but And then, and then it, I think things sort of click in again. I think, Kylie, I wouldn't overreact. And I'm, as I continue to delve into my own mind and think about this dilemma, I wouldn't, and I can see why you're worried about it, because you don't want to alert your mother's friends to the fact that her memory might be fading when it's not. You don't want her them to be on the lookout and think any worse of her. So I would probably, given that... Um, your mum's not yet 70, and given that she's just had two years of um, a very weird life that all of us are still coming to terms with, I'd keep a watch and wait perspective for the next few months. And um, if it really is that bad, the friends will come to you. and you, But you keep an eye on her yourself and maybe just watch and wait for the first few months. I think I've changed my view on that one. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about Kylie's, that. Kylie's taking notes and she's just thrown out the first piece of paper. Corrie, we need a drink. But before we do, I just want to say again, we do want to hear your dilemmas. And remember, we want to hear them. Probably the best way is send them to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. We'll be giving you a specially curated segment next week. There is a great one in the mailbox, Corrie, and I'm just going to tease it a little bit. Maybe next week, maybe the week after. Who pays for the coffee? I'll leave it at that. It can be more complex than you realise. But as I said, we need a drink. Righto, Corey, it is time to go to the cocktail cabinet, as we always do, with great zest and verve at this time of and the day. And huge excitement, can I say. Today, we spoke to Miles in further north, I think, in Italy last week from Prince Wine Store. Today, Miles, we find you in one of my favourite cities in the world, Montalcino. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So, Miles, um, Montalcino in Tuscany, not far from Montepulciano, that beautiful, another beautiful hilltop town in Italy. I mean, they just never stop those beautiful towns. You're there and you're going to talk to us today about Valpolicella. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. We've been here a couple of days, but... Um... Uh, on the way out of Piedmont, we went through to see a relatively new producer for us called um, La Dama Vini. And they're based in Valpolicella. And it was a really great visit. So really nice to finally meet them. We've been importing their wines for a couple of years, but we haven't had a chance to meet them, obviously, with COVID. So that was really fantastic. So I thought I might talk about them. So Valpolicella is a wine well known to me. I mean, it's I didn't actually, that's how stupid I am. I didn't know it was actually a place, Corrie. I just thought it was a wine. I didn't know it was a place either, but I do remember buying lots of it when we've been in Italy. <laughs> like it seemed to be the the drink of choice because it's not an overly heavy. Well, particularly the reds, they're not overly heavy, 
um, and perfect for, I don't know, lolling around in the garden or the swimming pool, Caro, with a nice glass at five o'clock in the evening. <laughs> Sounds good to me. So tell us what you've discovered, Miles. So this is the straight Valpolicella, so the, I guess the, the standard Valpolicella. But look, it's you can get all different sort of types there. They do tend towards, yeah, that sort of light to medium bodied. Um, and the ones that La Dama Vinnie make are on the sort of lighter side again. But really just lovely, vibrant, fresh, you know, really all that lovely spicy sort of red fruit, um, not a lot of tannins, really sort of juicy upfront sort of forward flavors. Um, you know, the type of wine that you could actually throw, you know, if it's really hot, you could throw in the fridge for 20 minutes and have them a little bit chilled. And we were talking to Gabrielle, the winemaker, about that, and he said he does that all the time in summer. And, um, yeah, look, they're just such wonderful wines. They're so easy to enjoy. And I thought, I don't know, is it still warm over there at the moment? Yeah, there's a slight cool change here in Melbourne, but it's still warm. It's still slightly muggy. We've had the most remarkable weather. I agree. It's a wine. Well, it's probably a wine you can drink all year round. But La Dama Ville, so absolutely. So this is something that we can buy at Prince Wine Store. Uh, what is it going to set yeah, us back and, des- and describe the vineyard to us? So it's 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 thirty dollars normally, and then obviously for your listeners, you get your ten percent off when you put in the code MEWS. Um, and yeah, he actually has two vineyards. So he has. The, the large vineyard in Negra, which is the main town, which is the heart of the original Valpolicella producing region. And then he also has a vineyard um, that's a bit higher up, about 350 metres, and it sits out overlooking Lake Garda. It's really beautiful. Oh, and he just bought we... that about five years ago. It blends that in. Can we go? <laughs> Sorry, Miles, you can't see Carol, Jane and I, but we're all just oh kind God. of like lolling. Our eyes are rolling thinking, oh, wow, will we ever get to travel again, ever? So what's it like Hello. over there? Describe the weather at the moment um, in uh, Montalcino. Well, look, it's been it's been really chilly. It's uh, I think it was minus one last night. Um, but the days have been absolutely clear. And today was just beautiful. I mean, it was pretty, you know, I, th- I don't know what the temperature was, but it, it got reasonably warm in the afternoon. Still still on the chilly side of things, but just wonderful, clear weather. A bit dry, though. That's the big issue in Italy at the moment is that they haven't had pretty much any rain in most of the wine-growing regions since um, December 8th or 10th or very early December, and it's a bit of a problem because normally you've had a bit of rain or snow and they just haven't got much, so... You know, that's just the nature of these things, so they're just going to see what happens. But it means for us travelling, it's been fantastic. And is Montalcino sort of open for business? You're going and having nice dinners and cafes open, the bistros open, etc.? Not as many places open as, as usual. Still still quite a few places closed. It's still starting to open up again, Italy, so um, not everyone's sort of rushing to open their doors. It's been fantastic. Everything we've been has been really awesome. So it sounds wonderful. Uh, I can't complain. Trattoria is a word I was looking for, Corrie. Um, we are in Italy, not France. Miles, um, that sounds absolutely beautiful. Not only the wine, but also the place, La Dama Vili, Mont, well, n- nearby Montalcino. La, La Dama Vini. Vini. La Dama Vini, Vini is in wine. Like, oh, that's right. Yeah, V I N I. La Dama Vini, Valpolicella, no, no, $30 a bottle. But for listeners of Don't Shoot the Messenger, 
10% discount. That sounds like a pretty good drop to me. That's a really good deal, Miles. And so we, we yeah. will see you back in the studio next week, Miles. Absolutely. Great. I'll bring all my photos with me. Oh, oh please don't. We look forward to that. Thank you again to <laughs> Prince Wine Store, bringing us the greatest wines in the world. Head to their website, of course, princewinestore.com.au or visit that wonderful treasure trove in South Melbourne to see it for yourself. Carol, it's time for us to go to BSF. And again, thank you to Red Energy, our sponsors, uh, who have just been with us for such a long time and we love having you guys on board. Snowy Hyde, powered by the Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Now, I'm going to kick it off with a book and this book is 790 pages now, I'm very aware that we've already Every, talked Everyone's just turned off. Everyone's <laughs> just turned off. I'm very aware we've just talked novels with Jane Caro, our guest today. But um, I'm just going to leave this one with you. I'm not going to go through the whole book. But it is called The Love Songs of W.E.B. B. Dubois by an American poet. This is her first novel, Honoré Jeffers. Honoré a poet. Jeffers, yes. And she's an American academic and she's a poet. And this is her first novel. Without doubt, I read this in January, Caro, without doubt, and I've gone out hard on my Instagram account, Corey is reading, this is in my top three for the year. If not possibly, will it be my best book of the year? We're only just into March. I know. I've made the call. I made the call. So this is an Oprah's Book Club selection. If you have time, particularly I'm thinking over Easter, give this a go. Caro, this has given me such insight into the African-American, the history of African-American going back to slavery working right through. Our contemporary voice is uh, a young woman. We follow her from teenage years through probably to her 40s, I think. Ailey uh, is a, Ailey Pearl Garfield is her name, and she is fascinated by her family's history. She ends up becoming a historian, a, an academic. Um, she's sassy, she's saucy, she's gorgeous. I keep seeing a young Oprah Winfrey. She talks back to the men in her life. She's a feisty, wonderful woman. And we follow her probably from, I think, probably the 80s through to now. But we go back in time also and we go back to the very, her, her very early ancestors who arrived on a boat um, as slaves from Amer from Africa uh, there is interrelational marriages, which we forget, of course. Many, many um, African-Americans married uh, Native Americans. So there's lots of cross-pollination here. This is a wonderful and remarkable book. It has utterly changed my view uh, or enhanced my view, I should say, of, um, of, of the current situation in the U.S., why there is just so much friction, why there is racism, why white supremacy was allowed to blossom under various political leaders and various governments over decades. It's an incredible and wonderful book. I loaned it. To, I said I ran into somebody. I'll, I'll just call her the cooking seal because that's her Instagram account. And I ran into seal after I had finished. Oh, no, I was halfway through it. And I said, you must, must, must read this book. She bought it and went to the shop and said, and sent me a text saying, Jesus, Corey, it's 700 pages. Anyway, a couple of days later, because of children and so on, they went into a lockdown situation in January. And she read it. She actually was beating me because she had nothing else to do for the week. Well, when we got together a couple of weeks later, we couldn't stop talking about this book. Really, honestly, Please do yourselves a favour and have a read of The Love Songs of W.E.B. Dubois. I'll just leave it at that. Well, you've read a very long book and I've been to a very long movie. 
So you did um, go to a very long movie. Did you say nearly three hours? Yeah, it was, but I never, you know, I was never bored. I went and saw The Batman, which is the latest Batman movie, very different to all of the others, except that, you know, look, it, it is very dark and very um, moody and it, it's, it's a, it's it. I suppose a film noir is a, and quite literally, is what it is. This is a new incarnation of the Batman franchise, a new one. I'm glad that Ben Affleck pulled out of this project because he can be a good actor, but he can be a bit hit and miss the old Ben. Oh, a bit old. Yeah. Well, Robert Pattinson. We Robert Pattinson stars. As oh, who used to be in... In uh, the Twilight movies. Yes, and he, also Harry Potter, I was thinking too. He Was he? Yeah, he was killed in Harry Potter. Was he? Yeah, um, number four, I'm looking at... Jack, neither of you have... No, is Don't there anybody him. out there who's seen all the Harry Potter movies seven times like me? Not C- all. Cedric, I think, was his name. Anyway, keep going. Anyway, this... The, the 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 main points to remember about this one is the cinematography is done by an Australian, Greg Fraser, who I think is up for an Oscar for another film this year. It is wonderful. Um, it received four stars in the Australian. So my son Ned and I took ourselves very unusual date to go and see a movie. He hasn't been to the he watches films all the time, but I don't think he's been to the cinema in a while. Neither has anyone. A great cast. Zoe Kravitz is absolutely brilliant as a very young incarnation of the person who becomes Catwoman. Oh, played so brilliantly by Michelle Pfeiffer all those years ago. Do you remember? Yes, and Eartha Kitt, I think, in yes, the TV Eartha series. Yes, Eartha Kitt too. I mean, a lot of famous Catwomen. Zoe Kravitz is one of my favourite yeah, actor, actors. She was a female. She played the female in a new incarnation of High Fidelity. Does the Joker or the Penguin pop up? The, um, yeah, the Penguin is an unrecognisable Colin Farrell. Um, there is a hint at the end of the movie that we might be seeing the Joker in a sequel. Who could ever play him other than? Um, well, the actor, the actor is a, a brilliant one who, who I think is going to be the next Joker. But the the actor who plays the Riddler, who is the main protagonist, the, the main criminal, I suppose, in this film, is absolutely brilliant. But Robert Pattinson is good. He's not the best Batman I've ever seen, but. He's showing good science. Who, who would be yours? Christian Bale. Oh, really? This is. I've um, still got a thing for Michael Keaton. This is Batman in its very early carnations. Bruce Wayne has only just become the Batman in the last two years. The backstory is absolutely fascinating, and there's a lot of um, a lot of family history and Batman him Bruce Wayne himself's own dark family history that emerges in this film. Gotham City is under siege from an underworld criminal element. It's absolutely, um, it's just dreadful what's happening to Gotham City. There's a lot of biblical references. There's a lot of references to old films like Seven, uh, so many others. You know, it, it's quite clever the way, if, if you're a film buff, you'll actually absolutely love some of the things that happen. Even Noah's Ark gets a run. But um were you a were you a Batman TV girl with Adam loved, West? Loved it, absolutely <laughs> loved it. Looking back, it was dreadful, but a kapow, you know. I must say, when the Batmobile does emerge, it's pretty impressive. There's a pretty impressive car chase. Paul Dano is the Riddler. He is very menacing. Is Alfred there? Alfred is played by an English actor called Andy Serkis, who was in, um, I think, um, I think we saw him in in Harry Potter. We saw him in Little Dorothy. You a, didn't see him in Harry Potter. 
I've seen some Harry Potter films. Have you? Yep, yep, I absolutely have. Anyway, I would recommend Batman. The story is really, really good. It's all. It's it's basically about there's drug deals, there's a mafia, it's a criminal underbelly. As the review said that I read in the Australian, the script does let it down. It can get a bit cheesy at times, but the acting is very good, and I think that the um, story is very good. I, I also think that it's probably not as it says a superhero movie. It's more a a thriller, murder mystery, and it's um sounds great. I'll it's definitely enjoyable. be there. I'll definitely go. Now, Corrie, you and I enjoyed um our friend Sal, who's a wonderful cook's um recipe the other day. I've had it a few times, but she reprised it again for the birthday of a dear friend of ours. Her prawn and chorizo skewers. Mm-hmm. This is one of the great bar snacks on trays. My, my mouth is watering. There is just something rather magical about chorizo with a bit of seafood. What is that combo? As it works in paella and other paella. things. But this this is a, a dish that is served in the, well, I mean, there'll be a better word, but the tapas bars all around Spain. Sal has absolutely perfected it with those little wooden skewers with the nub on the end. You can get them. Oh, the presentation was 10 out of 10, Sal. Marinate 11 your, out of 10. Marinate your prawns, raw prawns with the tail on. Buy the prawn cutlets, cheat a bit because they're nice and big and thick and they'll work in a skewer. In olive oil, garlic. I love the way you did. You just said work in a skewer and you like you were shoving something up somebody's yes. bottom. <laughs> well, you actually do have to shove it up through the prawn. Um, marinate them in olive oil, garlic, chili flakes, parsley. Add a bit of lemon juice at the end, but only right at the end because remember they um, can also almost cure if you leave that in for too long. You do a prawn and then you do a piece of chorizo. I think you then do another prawn. No, one prawn. One prawn, one chorizo. Mm. That's right. The chorizo has to be cut relatively thick because it needs to be almost as thick as the prawn. Mm, And you have to skewer through. But it's even cooking, isn't it? That's the dilemma. Yes, exactly. So you don't go – so you're slicing the chorizo. You slice it through the side that would have had the skin on. It's a good tip, says Sal, to put the skewer, which, of course, you soak the – if they're wooden skewers, um, you soak them overnight or certainly for a few hours. So when you – do them on a grill or a barbecue or fry pan, whatever, they're going to um, not burn. You don't have a fire. Not go up in flames. But you stick a hole through first. The side that would have the skin on, so the prawn, then the chorizo, um, it is just delicious. Mm. Fry it on both sides until the prawn is cooked. It is a mouth-watering snack. Serve them on a platter sprinkled with um, some chopped red chilli and some parsley or coriander. Very, very pretty, very, very tasty. And also I was thinking you could actually do that and turn it into a pasta, couldn't you? Yeah, I suppose so. You, you could. could. Well, you it will. Be delicious with well, with it with it some sort of base sauce, but it would be delicious. Well, like you do with rice for a paella, but mm. there's something about it just to have on its own. So prawn and chorizo skewers is our recipe of the week. And Corrie, that was BSF for Red Energy. Very long book, very long film, very simple bar snack. Powered by Snowy Hydro, that's Red Energy. Just remember, it's time you called them on 131 806. Corrie, you're grumpy. Uh, grumpy, Caro. The Wyoming Senate last week passed an amendment to stop funding the local university's gender and women's studies program. Now, it won't come as a surprise, Caro, to know that the Wyoming Senate is loaded with Republicans who are very conservative, but they have decided that anything related to history of women, feminism, gender studies, um, funding stops. 
So you can imagine the uproar, particularly amongst university folk, because the university wasn't told that this was happening. No one consulted, as I understand the university, to say, look, we're concerned about your gender studies, your raft of, of different subjects that you're offering students relating to women, um, transgender issues, queer, um, queer non-conforming individuals who have ex- exercised rights to their agency, uh, translating feminist works, social justice theories about women and activism, all gone, all funding gone. So, of course, the university is rather agitated, as are the Democrats who just say, this is absolute nonsense. We are going backwards. Um, academic freedom has been hijacked. Um, so I just thought on International Women's Day, I was appalled to see that. I can't believe how increasingly right-wing America's becoming. Our friend Jane Caro mentioned earlier, Roe v. Wade is in danger. There's, there, there is, I tell you what, the women of America must be particularly concerned and worried at this time in their history. So that's what I'm grumpy about. Now, Caro, on to six quick questions. Um, do you want to kick it off? Well, on, on that same theme, Corrie, on this year's International Women's Day, and I noticed the Herald Sun today ran a word, a, a line on every page of Helen Reddy's song, I Am Woman. So there's sort of a hear me roar mm, on I remember page singing that at my 60th birthday. <laughs> we, uh, yes, a lot of us singing it. <laughs> on International Women's Day, is there one woman or group of women who come to mind? There are, and... Uh, they are the the women writers of Australia. I popped on the Instagram account this morning, just a handful of them who I have admired, who not only have changed the way we think about our country and the way we think about ourselves, but the way we think about humanity. And Caro, think of the extraordinary. Uh, I mean, I was trying to just sort of fit the 16 photographs into the one Instagram account. Miles Franklin and Henry Handel Richardson, if we go back to my brilliant career, um, people like Charmaine Cliff, all those wonderful female journalists of the 40s, 50s and 60s who were writing about feminism before feminism was born. And then, of course, onto the stage, Jermaine Greer and Helen Garner. Boom, 60s and 70s, all of a sudden, everything they unleashed. And then our great Indigenous writer, um, writers, um, so many of them, um, Ujuru Nunankal, who we know as Kath Walker, the great poet, um, Tara June Winch, we loved the yield. So many of them. Um, Bobby Sykes, who I had the um, the great honour to interview when I was a young journalist. Geraldine Brooks, who now lives in the US, but of course, um, year of year she of is wonders. a house in Martha's Vineyard. The lucky thing. So really, I just think of all the Australian female writers, and that's who I'm paying tribute to today. Oh, okay, very that's impressive. It. Now, Caro. Last week, it was announced Hobart is getting a new $750 million sports stadium. Which Tasmanian sporting legends deserve a stand named after them? Well, my list is almost as long as your Women for International Women's Day, and I'm not going to put it Don't on Don't start the... with Royce Hart. Well, he'd be one, but, I mean, I think the, Re- the Revolt cousins would be right up there, as would Peter Hudson, um, Daryl Baldock, obviously, Matthew Richardson. There are so many... Great Tasmanians. But I think the hero of this story, and if it does become a story, and if Tasmania does finally get its own team, and I do think it's real, and I think that this announcement, this wonderful stadium on the banks of the Derwent, you know, with a roof and what it's going to mean for the people of Hobart, um, all the arguments are being swept aside now. Oh, Tasmania, the the north and south don't get on. Um, 
North and West don't get on. It, it's so many ridiculous arguments. People won't want to, players won't want to live in Hobart. Yes, they will. There are two, not enough players anyway. Ridiculous argument. I think that the I hero. I think this is going to be your being the bonnet in 2022, don't the, you? Well, it's. It, it's it, been it, ongoing for years. I, but. I, I think it's real. And I think that um, Peter Gutwin will be the hero of this story. And I don't think a state premier will ever get his name on a stand. And probably that's the right thing. But he will get a room, just as Ian McLaughlin, for example, does at the Adelaide Oval, because Peter Gutwin is a Premier who has finally stood up and put his money where his mouth is. He has got a lot more he needs to deliver, and I think the AFL is waiting for this. And I think the other non-player who will be able to claim this as his legacy will be Gillan McLaughlin, if he actually delivers this in his time. Oh, anyway. wow, there's an incentive. Now, Corrie... What is yet another reason to admire? We, we spoke to Jane Caro about journalists running for politics. What is another reason to admire the Ukraine president, Volodymyr Zelensky? Lots of reasons to admire Zelensky at the moment, um, but just something a little trivial. This, in fact, was going to be my amazing fact if I'd done it this week. Did you know, you know how he was an actor, I explained that last week, and an, and an entrepreneur and a producer of great note. He also, another reason we love him, in the Ukraine's version of Paddington and Paddington 2, those two great movies I love and adore starring Colin Friel, he was the voice of Paddington. He was the voice of Paddington Bear in the Ukraine version of those two movies. Which was Say a, no more. That was a great... Well, I finally watched Paddington 2 um, recently. It's the best. It's Isn't real, Hugh Grant fantastic? It's a really good film. <laughs> I'm, glad you, I'm glad you finally caught up with it. Cara, which Australian regional town shines most brightly? Well, over the weekend, it was Geelong. I found myself in Geelong for the wedding of the, the great Victorian... Well, sorry, the great Australian football administrator, Brian Cook, Many, many years at Geelong. Better known as Cookie. After a successful career at West Coast and has very recently taken over as the chief executive of the Carlton Football Club. He was married on the weekend in Geelong on Eastern Beach. It was a fabulous night, just a beautiful reception, beautiful speeches from all members of his his and the beautiful Claire, the newly um, married Claire Cook's family. But um, it was like you could have been at the French Riviera looking over at the, on the Cote d'Azur looking over Eastern Beach. That with, is a big call. With light rain and all the lights, it was purely dark. We had the Foo Fighters playing at Cadinia Park at GMHBA Stadium. Midnight Oil, not so far away. A massive car show on over the weekend. I think um, a big um, local school's regatta was happening on the Barwon the following day. I've never seen a t it, the peak hour driving into Geelong. It was like driving into one of the biggest cities in the world. It was packed and they seemed to deliver. They delivered everything, all with great success. We drove out of Geelong late on Friday night to fireworks coming out of GMHBO Stadium to end the Foo Fighters concert, which was apparently brilliant. So... Geelong, well done, Geelong. And they're about to launch their new art centre, which is going to be remarkable. So my my daughter Coco's moved there. It's all happening. Geelong, as you say, Geelong, does it need to decide what it is? It's got everything at the moment, and it has it has the AFL's one really successful regional football team. So well done. Well, I think don't shoot the messenger should go on the road this year, and I think we should go to Geelong. And we, well, I think we're all we're going to Jane. Jane's got a hand up. I, I just wanted to say, in defence of Ballarat, because there's always a rivalry. It's the Begonia Festival this weekend, so the oh, long yes, weekend. Worth going to it visit. is worth going. 
And yeah, and there's a very, very big um, exhibition starting soon in Bendigo that we're going to tell you yes. more about next week. We're taking part in. Corrie, which piece of china do you wish you owned? I wish I had the platinum jubbly. Have you heard about this? No. <laughs> so a Chinese a man, jubbly. A, a China a Chinese manufacturer was asked to produce uh, all of this stuff for the Queen's ju- platinum jubilee, and so. The items arrived in the UK in time for the Jubilee celebrations, which kick off in June. 10,800 teacups, mugs and plates to mark the Queen's 70-year reign. But there was a spelling error, the Platinum Jubilee. Oh, no. And, Caro, the whole, the whole stuff, well, they're, they're, actually oh, going no. to, they're actually going to sell them. So it's not as though they're going to sm- smash the china. But it is it is really quite funny to see. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing really funny about it, but there, it is funny to see all of these plates and everything saying the platinum jubilee. So that is hilarious. Now, Cara, what's your amazing fact? Well, hold on. There, there, there's a couple. I mean, I was astounded to read in a review of the new um, Bob Hawke book that um, Shane's, Shane Warne's mum was in fact um, the Hawke family's housekeeper. Really? Yep. Yeah, back in uh, back in Sandringham many many years ago, and um, young Shane would often be at the Hawke household. His mum would um, take him along. I mean, that, that's a pretty good fact. But a, a sad fact and a, a sign of the times was that last weekend was the last time, certainly in my mother's suburb, and I'm told in pretty much every suburb, my suburbs of Melbourne, where news agents actually delivered newspapers. No, no more. Newspapers will still be delivered, but they will be delivered from central hubs now, as has been happening in many places already. But news agents are continuing, but they're not going to, well, on their own, deliver newspapers. They've actually morphed into soft toy shops. I know, I know. Which is very disconcerting. Well, it's better than post offices, which seem to sell everything bar, you know, a decent stamp. I mean... They sell cooking, they sell, you know, magi mixes and the stuff you see at, gee, Australia Post lost its way back on, back when um, Ahmed Fahur was running it. But anyway, that's another yeah. story. Um, no, but um, I think many people will say that news agents for a long time, for decades, had a monopoly that was most unfair and owned certain suburbs, etc. But I think it's a sad day where... Um, all newspapers are now going to be wrapped in that dreadful plastic. Oh. You need a science degree to open them. I know a lot of people don't get the newspapers delivered anymore. And I know that in regional towns it's different. But in Melbourne, I think it's some um, coming to an end. Oh, that's sad. Is there not enough sadness in the world? Really, this has been a big emotional week and that's just top. Most people will be listening saying, get over yourselves, we no, read papers no, online. No. But no, no, I no. Don't. We love having papers delivered. Well, look, on that sort of sad note, look, let's be let's try and be happy and let's remember that you can contact us at any time and think of a modern dilemma. It can be serious or frivolous. We don't mind. We're here to help. And any feedback that you would like to send us, please, we love hearing all your brickbacks and bouquets and we love reading out your letters, even though today, sorry, we didn't have much time. Feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and a reminder that Jane Caro's novel The Mother is now on sale, $32.99 at a good bookshop near you. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. That is also a really great way to leave us a little message, which we're always happy to read out. And if you'd like to have the show notes delivered to your inbox each week, just hit the sign up button on Facebook or contact Miss Jane at feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and we'll talk you through it. 
Caro, big week, big emotional week. And so at the end of it, just celebrate International Women's Day. What do we say? Don't shoot the messenger, Corey. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806? And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world.